we have a choice. And our choice is simple, to move or not move. And when you move, you learn. When you don't move, you don't learn. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom, and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. Well, Coffee Potters, we like to keep you on your toes, and this week is no different. We're delving into totally new territory and the world of neuroscience. Now, our guest is Dr. Bo Lotto. Bo is a globally renowned neuroscientist whose studies in human perception have taken him well beyond the scientific domain and into the fields of education, the arts, and business. Bo is a man of many talents. He talks all around the world. He's created incredible television programs, scientific experiments. He's a best-selling author. And one of the things I love is he's created this uh, amazing company called the Lab of Misfits, where he brings together people from divergent perspectives and technical trainings to help organizations solve big questions around what is tolerance or um, what does it mean to be wired for wonder, for example. Now, in this conversation, we get into a whole array of fascinating neuroscience topics. We talk bias, we talk perception, we talk uh, the power of play, uh, we talk about the notion of being wired for wonder and how everything begins from not knowing. Now, before we get it underway, unfortunately, I just want to acknowledge that every week we try our best to make sure the audio quality is as good as possible. And unfortunately, sometimes circumstances outside our control prevent that from happening. This podcast is one of those cases, but the content is amazing. So I really hope you persist. Um, but I just wanted to acknowledge that up front. Thank you for listening. Here's Dr. Bolotto. Well, Dr. Bolotto, thank you so much for joining us on Coffee Pods. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for, for inviting me. Well, I had the privilege of uh, seeing you speak recently. You're a globally renowned neuroscientist who studies the art of human perception. I'm intrigued before we get into what is the art of human perception to begin with. Um, how did, where did your fascination with the human brain start? I suppose in a number of places. Uh, the most immediate place that it started was really quite um, like many of these things start with someone else. And that someone else was... For instance, Marion Diamond, a wonderful, remarkable uh, professor at Berkeley, who was one of my mentors in the truest sense. And unfortunately, she's recently passed. And she just so embodied sort of the ability to see differently, the ability to challenge oneself and to thrive. Uh, and she was, she made a number of discoveries. She was the first one to study Einstein's brain and found that he had many more glial cells than, than most people. Glial cells are the support cells for your neurons. And she was also the person who really advanced the idea that your brain is a lot like a muscle. You use it to lose it. And she did these tremendous experiments with raising rats in different kinds of environments, which we can talk to later. But she was a tremendous inspiration as a person and, and also the topic. Uh, and that's really what got myself interested specifically in the brain, but I was always interested in, in how we adapt and how systems adapt. 
Uh, and so really, my interest is beyond the brain. It's, it's more that the brain is a way of actually experiencing adaptation itself. But I'm fascinated about how systems come to remain in a sort of a dynamic equilibrium with the world. And I'm fascinated to understand why it was that human perception uh, was the focus of your endeavors. What made you choose that area? Well, because for many years, uh, when I was um, doing my PhD in Edinburgh Medical School, I was studying the mechanisms, the cellular mechanisms by which our brain cells adapt and change and grow and die. And then I moved to work with my other tremendous mentor, someone called Dale Purvis, a remarkable, remarkable person who started the neurobiology department at Duke University. And he was one of the fathers of thinking about the mechanisms by which the brain grows and adapts. And then the question was, well, what happens if you have a brain that's changing like this? And that, of course, is perception. Um, that the, the perceptual consequences of having a brain that's shaped by interaction with the world. And that's one aspect. The other aspect is that everything that we do begins with perception. Well, not only the colors we see, but we, we know what we believe, the clothes we choose, the people we fall in love with, music, everything begins with perception. So in some sense, everyone is touching perception one way or the other. So to understand perception is to understand not only how the brain adapts and the mechanism of the brain, it's also understand what it is to be human. And so, and so Bo, when it comes to perception, uh, for those of us who aren't neuroscientists, what are some of the core principles that you think each of us need to understand? Probably one of the most important key principles when it comes to perception is that we evolve to see the world not accurately, but usefully. So what I mean by that is that what evolution gives you is not an ability to accurately predict, but usefully predict. So if you behave usefully, you are more likely to survive than if you didn't. What that means is that uh, your brain, too often people think about illusions. They think that our senses are fragile or that we're tricked. Um, or that we have a shared delusion. It's kind of a, and in some sense, a trite way of thinking about illusions. Rather, what that demonstrates is that it suggests an altogether different thing that the brain evolved to see. It gives you the possibility of changing, of adapting, right? So that's one of the key principles that we evolve to see the world usefully, and in understanding that, it gives you the potential of becoming an agent in perception itself. Now, there's a line that you said when we first met that the brain doesn't hasn't evolved to think in absolutes. It, it is evolved to think in relationship. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So the idea is that it begins with what is the fundamental problem that vision evolved to solve? And that's the problem of uncertainty. What do I mean by that? When you open your eyes, your eyes receive information from that world in the form of light. Okay? So light exists. It's in the world. It comes from these sources. It reflects off objects, and, it, and then it activates the receptors in our eyes. The problem is that that information conflates multiple aspects of the world. It could be arising from a far object that's large or a small object that's up close. It could be coming from a red object in a green light or a green object under red light or a white object in shadow and a black object in light. These are all different ways of generating the exact same information. So based on the data itself, your brain has no way of knowing what the actual source is. And even if it did, it, the, the information doesn't come with instructions. So there's no way for your brain to, to, to see usefully based on the data alone. It has to use something else, and that something else is history. 
and a particular kind of history. It's an interactive history. So that's why context is everything. Your brain evolved to see relationships. And in fact, your, your listening audience can actually demonstrate this for themselves by actually stopping their eyes from moving. So as they're looking around, if they focus on a wall that's not moving, they themselves don't move their head, their eyes are actually twitching. They're called saccades and microsaccades. You're not consciously aware that this is happening. But if they actually take their finger and put it near their tear duct and push gently their eye backward, um, they actually push it to the back of the eye socket and their eye will stop moving. What happens is your brain adapts and the whole world disappears because it stops moving. So your brain is constantly looking for change. If there's no change, there's nothing interesting to look at because life is movement. That's brilliant to me. And the other thing that I love about what you're talking about there is this, you're talking about this tension for me a little bit in that, you know, the importance of and the role that uncertainty plays in context. Um, and yet as human beings, we have this love for knowing. We have this love for certainty that seems to kind of run um, in tension with that. And and one of the things I know you talk about a lot is this idea that nothing interesting begins with knowing. It all begins with not knowing. Can you expand, uh, expand on that? Yes. So you're absolutely right that uh, we have this deep, deep desire for certainty because dying is easy. So if you weren't sure that was a predator, it was too late. So your brain evolved to take what is uncertain, this information that your brain is receiving from the world, and make certainty from it. In other words, to take something that is inherently meaningless, which again, doesn't mean that the world doesn't exist, it does, but the information doesn't come with instructions, so it's meaningless in that sense, because it could literally mean anything, and then you have to construct a meaning from it. So your brain evolved to do exactly that. That's why we have the possibility of language. Because this is so essential, to be able to predict is so essential for our survival, we become deeply uncomfortable if you're in a situation where you cannot predict. Because during evolution, that would actually be a risky situation. Right? Again, if you weren't sure that was a predator, it was too late. Mm-hmm. And when we're in such situations, if, for instance, you ingest poison, your body feels revulsion, for instance. Well, in the case of uncertainty, you feel stressed. Right? You can go into fight-to-flight response. Your cortisol levels go up. In fact, almost every behavior we do, you could argue, is an attempt to decrease uncertainty. You could argue that's one of the biggest sources of stress in our environment. And yet, ironically, that's the only place we can go if we're going to see differently. So we basically have lots of behaviors that try to keep ourselves from stepping into uncertainty, create environments that are highly predictable. The problem is the world changes. And if we don't change with it, you get to, you get selected out. So ultimately, you have to step into that. But fortunately, evolution also gave us a solution to that. Oh, I want to ask you, what is solutions, uh, evolution's solution to that? Because I feel like, you know, we're <laughs> at a time in the world too where, you know, the, the demand for us to, to get comfortable with uncertainty is only growing. What did, what did evolution give us to help us navigate that? It gave us play. Play is a state of being. It's a way of being. It's not just a process. It's a way of being that evolved to give us the desire to step into uncertainty. I mean, the beautiful thing about play is you actually love it. It's not that you tolerate it, or it's not even that you're comfortable with it. You want it. You know, to not know who's going to win the game uh, is why it's fun. And so we actually love it. What's more, it's inherently collaborative. It's what we call intrinsically motivating. Uh, think about rewards for behavior. Almost everything we do, we do for reward that's different from what we're actually doing. We work to make money. The money is a reward for the behavior of work. Well, the reward of play is play. 
it's self-motivated. Sex is another one. There are very few behaviors where the, re- the reward is the thing itself. And, well, if you then add intention to play, because play has no inherent intention, if you add intention to play, science is nothing other than play with intention. Science is too often defined as the scientific method. Well, that's hugely important. But that's the craft of science. That's like defining um, Michelangelo's painting by the way he by the way he moved his paintbrush. Science is not defined by the scientific method. It's as important that, as that is. And and I find tremendous beauty in crafting experiments. But what science really is is play with intention. What I mean by that, it's the evolved state to actually want to step into uncertainty, to want to not know, and that's why when I start my talks, I say I want people to know less at the end than they think of the beginning, because nothing interesting begins with knowing, it begins with a question, not with an answer. Uh, in fact, when you think about design thinking, they often begin with a problem, and they then iterate to better solutions. Well, that iteration is in fact just a cooperation, a co-opting of, this, of the scientific method, which is empiricism, right? Just trial and error. But if you come up with a great solution to a problem that doesn't really matter who cares what's far more interesting is is asking a good question but asking a good question is very hard and then the desire to ask the question requires you not knowing it requires humility it requires i don't know and actually being excited by not knowing so often when we don't know we feel stressed we feel threatened Leadership is too often designed around knowing rather than actually not knowing. Mm. And so science is actually an iteration to better questions, not to necessary solutions. In fact, when you find a solution to a great question, you actually increase uncertainty. You don't decrease it. I'd also argue that play with which is not only science, it's anything that's creative. It transcends science. Because so much of what we're talking about is, you know, uh, is culture at the moment. How do we create the uh, the culture of work and the culture of leadership that's going to get the most out of people? What does neuroscience help us understand about what we can be more conscious of curating in terms of the the day to day environment we're getting people to work in or we're setting up um, as a work environment as a leader? Leadership is hugely important for this because what defines the quality of a good leader is how you lead others into uncertainty. Right? And there are three qualities that are associated, often associated with success of any organization, which are qualities of leadership, which is lead by example, admit mistakes, and see qualities in others. To lead by example is to create a trust, because you can't play if you're not in a space of trust. We know this with children, for instance, right? We know this for, you know, how far a young child can venture from his mother or father depends on actually how much trust they have in them. And because you can't step into uncertainty if you don't have a certainty for which to step. Mm. Then you have, leave by example, admit mistakes, which is to a space that celebrates not knowing. And then see qualities in others is a space that celebrates diversity. From a biological point of view, the whole debate around diversity is, is just ridiculous in some sense. I mean, we just take that for granted. The driving engine of evolution is itself diversity. A system can't evolve if it's not diverse. It's how you manage in the context in which you create that diversity. But a, a more diverse system is a more complex system. It has a, has a higher dimensionality. Its search space has a higher dimensionality. And we know from mathematics that the most successful systems are more complex, not simple. Simple systems are easier to move, but they're less likely to find the best solution. So these lead by example admit 
mistake equalities and others are basically the context in which you enable people to not just step into somebody, but want to be there, to thrive to be there, and then to enable them to move back and forth. You, you increase efficiency, and then you decrease it. So it's interesting when you bring up the topic of diversity, because I think one of the things we often talk about in those conversations is um, bias, be it conscious or unconscious. And uh, that quality we've got of being able to put ourselves in the the shoes of another person, hence the need for diversity in and of itself. So we can bring that alternative perspective to the table, but that ability to kind of um, uh, be truly open to the alternative opinion, viewpoint, um, perception. Do you have any advice for leaders who are going, I get this diversity thing, but I'm actually struggling to lead it and manage it and have conversations with my team in a way that allows everyone to really contribute in? So how do you reward? Do you, re- do you reward elements of competition or do you reward, reward something else? Because that's what you'll foster. So the leader needs to create that environment where people actually want to actually be part of something that's larger than themselves. And that's itself fundamental. Not only fundamental for the group and for the individuals, but for the leader themselves. Because, and, and I should say that the lab, you know, there, there's a great model for what this looks like in the real world, and it's called a lab. And this is not because I'm sort of glorifying science. It's simply because science has to make discoveries, but I can't say to my students, I need that discovery by Tuesday. But the discovery has to happen because we also have to have grants. We have to, you know, we have to move between creativity and efficiency. And that is a a very sort of familial environment that you need to create with the trust, et cetera. Um, And so much of that is because you're pursuing something that's larger than yourself. That's one aspect. The other aspect is to be aware that everything you're doing is grounded in assumptions. Not sometimes, but all the time. And that's good, right? Because your brain can't do it otherwise. What history gives you are assumptions, biases. Every time you take a step, you have hundreds of biases that your legs aren't going to give way. That you know these these biases keep us alive. But what was once useful may no longer be useful, which is why we also evolve to adapt. So we have to actually change our biases. In particular, we have to expand them. So rather than trying to shift, expand the space of possibility, and. Also, it's only by being aware that you have biases that gives you the possibility of seeing differently. So you have to first acknowledge that you have them. So this concept of stepping outside the box is a really silly idea because all you do is you step inside a new box. (laughs) You can never leave the concept of assumptions. What you really want to do is increase the size of your box, increase the dimensionality of your box. And you do that with diversity of people, um, diversity of thinking. And that begins with acknowledging perception works, that you've got these assumptions and biases, recognizing what they are, because the best person to reveal them to you is usually not you. It's usually someone else from a different background. And then it's questioning them, which, again, is very scary because that takes you into uncertainty. So you need to create that environment that enables you to question and actually wants you, you want to question. And for those who are wanting to take on that challenge, because I feel like there'll be people listening going, geez, I could probably go and investigate my biases a little bit better than I might have done. That notion, as you said, it's quite an intimidating or uncomfortable idea. Do you have any tips for how practically to go about creating that environment for yourself so you can best do that you know, expansion of the dimensionality and the, the size of the box that you're in? Um, first of all, listen to your emotions because your emotions are usually triggers to tell you whether or not your biases are being fulfilled. So when you step into a space that is different from what you expect. Often, not always, often you'll feel some sort of negative emotion, a fear, for instance. What that's telling you is that 
this is not what I expected. Well, what you expected is, of course, a reflection of your bias and assumptions. Then the nature of the emotion can actually direct you to what those might actually be. Because remember, what you're doing is you're projecting that into the world. In fact, you're even projecting it onto other people. So in the same way, I have no access to the surfaces in the world other than to the light that's coming from them onto my eyes. I also have no access to what's inside someone else's head. Their meaning, I project onto them. In the same way, I color the world because light itself, which exists, isn't colored. Right? The color can't be close to you. It's inside your head projected outward. That's also true for another person. You project the meaning onto them. You effectively color the other person based on your assumptions, based on your biases, based on your history. And so becoming aware of that gives you the possibility of engaging with them in a new way. What is that new way? Enter conflict with a question. Enter conflict with doubt. Enter conflict with, a, with uncertainty rather than with answers and with certainty. The Lab of Misfits, which is the, the studio you founded. I'm intrigued to know the backstory behind that name, might I add. Talk to us a little bit about the work that you're doing uh, with your company. So the Lab of Misfits is exactly that. I mean, it's, it's, it, the, the, the clue is in the name. So it is a lab, and that is literally a lab. It's, it's not a studio, though we do studio work. So it's a lab that's trying to create discovery and is trying to create discovery around human nature, human values, and it does it with a collection of misfits. What I mean by that is people from neuroscience, design, art, theater, um, production, etc. And the reason why we bring this group of people together is because we create experiments that are experiential. So we call them experiential experiments. Research is in the real world. We basically turn my lab into theater, and everything in that space is being recorded. And people know it. And the nature of the experiment is about a human value, take on wonder or take empowerment. And our aim, and then the organizations, the companies, then get engaged with that because through that process, we can create insight into whatever it is that they're trying to engage with, but also that deeper human value. But what's more, the people themselves who are part of that process, whether it be a theater experience or a nightclub experience um, or an adventure, they also walk away with a better understanding of themselves. So we didn't give the data back to people. We don't keep it and then sell it. We actually give it back to them. So they walk away with a better understanding of themselves. And in doing so, it also facilitates branding and marketing loyalty. Because the argument is that actually these organizations can add tremendous value to the world by helping people better understand themselves. And that also changes the way the companies themselves work. Not only do they become, say, more altruistic, but you could argue, and we're doing research, that the companies themselves could actually perform better, fewer six days, more creativity, more intention, because they see themselves contributing to something that's larger than themselves. I love that, Bo. And I want to come and see one of these labs at some point. It sounds amazing. I wanted to ask you, you're across so many interesting studies, you know, both over the course of your degree, but obviously, you know, in the experiments you're involved in now and the scientific communities that you work in. Is there a particular study or two that for you just it was sort of almost blows the mind? You go, wow, that is a, a watershed uncovering of what it means to be human, how the brain works. Are there, there particular ones that you are just fascinated by? Uh, the ones that I'm fascinated by, I suppose I am particularly fascinated on recent work, uh, both in our, uh, in our own lab, uh, but also in other people's work. And it has to do with the power of awe and wonder. And why did that um, perceptual state evolve in the first place? What is it? 
what happens inside your brain, and who cares? Is it just an epiphenomenon? phenomenon? And what we and others have discovered is that, no, it is possibly one of the deepest perceptions that we have. And what is the sense of that? Well, you feel small, but fundamentally connected to the world. Your ego decreases. You become pro-social. You want to do good for other people. You want to actually step into uncertainty. So it could be that that is the emotional, which for me is a perception, the perceptual response that evolved to help us give that momentum to step forward rather than to step back. Because if you think about it, almost always, every single decision, there's only one thing we're deciding between. In that sense, life is incredibly basic. The question is always, do I go forward or do I go back? That's pretty much it. Everything else is a narrative. And so awe and wonder could be that thing that evolved to facilitate stepping forward into the world. And so we're trying to better understand that and then create experiences that facilitate that, whether that be an education or performance or even as an initial basis for facilitating toleration in people. A lot of what you've talked about is, is touching on these these habits that are hardwired, like even that notion of going into conflict with certainty, going into conflict with an answer. That's something that we, uh, I don't know whether it's socialized, I, I don't know where it comes into our field of view, I suppose that is the way. But that becomes our our frame of operating in conflict-based situations. What, if anything, can neuroscience um, tell us or help us with when it comes to making habit changes? I think it's actually a habit in of itself. I think this is exercise. It's hard. And one of the reasons why it's hard is to accept uh, blame, to accept the cause of and uh, take ownership of the cost of one's own behavior is very difficult for some reason, because it actually increases, in a sense, uncertainty, right? Because it almost makes you more more unpredictable to yourself. The Mm. irony is that if you don't do it, you're actually disempowering yourself. By not taking some ownership responsibility of the cost of one's own behavior, you actually disempower the very thing that you have control over, which is yourself. Which, And we know from the neuroscience what happens when people feel disempowered. When people feel as if the world's happening to them, there's a sense of similarity, there's a sense of uh, comfort in that because it's, I can't be blamed. But also your brain goes into a different state. You start seeing patterns where no pattern exists. You start using context indiscriminately. You become more gullible. You are more likely to go from un- from uncertainty to anger rather than to curiosity or from fear to anger rather than curiosity because anger is an evolved perceptual solution to uncertainty because you become incredibly certain. Bo, I've got a one final question I want to ask you before we let you get back to your um, incredible work. I love at Coffee Pods to leave people with a call to action. So after listening, something that they can go and do to pick up some of the ideas that you have talked about and apply them or just a general call to action that you might like to encourage people listening to take up. What would you love to um, allow listeners to go and do? Uh, Let's see. It's more of a concept. Mm -hmm. And the concept is to be the sandbar for other people. So often we're, you know, we're we're self-focused. We're seeing how can I improve? What can I do? For myself, well, one of the greatest things we can do for ourselves is to enable this in other people. And through that, you yourself expand. Think about a parent. I'm a parent of three uh, wonderful um, people, 16, 18, 20. And I feel my role for them is not to protect them from risk, but to enable them to take it. And so the metaphor I say to them is, look, I'm not your boat. I'm not the one 
is going to pull you out of the water and take you to the other side. I'm your sandbar. I'm the one that you're, you know, because you want to swim. You love swimming. But you're going to get tired. So what you can do is you can come back and you can stand on the sandbar. You're still in the water feeling that beautiful motion. When you're resting, you can go out and swim again. And so my call to action would be to try to be that sandbar for other people as well as let yourself be the swimmer and someone else be the sandbar for you. But maybe shift the focus a bit and try to be that sandbar for others. And in doing so, you might actually find that you can step into uncertainty. You feel more empowered. You feel more creative. You feel more enabled in doing so. I love that whole notion. I've uh, like particularly moving away from the idea of being the boat or fully protecting, but that idea of kind of permitting safe risk taking or being the support for people to be out there trying new things, experiencing uh, new environments, all that sort of stuff. I think that's a wonderful frame and a great encouragement to leave people with. So thank you both for that. And thank you more broadly for making the time to have a chat with us today. I think your work is so inspiring. You're one of the most engaging speakers I've seen on stage and it's been a real joy to get to learn a little bit more about the incredible work that you're doing. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.